0: For highlights. We're here with Silky Gillison, Silky Prostate Cancer. Well, it's always first in the meeting, much to Brian's <laughs> irritation. So let's kick <laughs> off with that. What were the highlights uh, of, in prostate cancer at GU?
1: Maybe I start with localized prostate cancer. Uh, I think we discussed that already shortly um, at the preview. So there was a really big phase three trial from the French group. J'ai took um, 18 this time, and it was in high-risk localized prostate cancer, radiotherapy, dose intensification with three years of ADT in both arms. And it was quite interesting because so that it was 70 gray versus 80 gray. And I understand we're all not radiotherapists, um, but 70 grays nowadays probably also a bit substandard. But the interesting thing is we, we saw a lot of, you know, when you do more radiotherapy, a benefit in biochemical relapse. But in this trial, they really showed an OS survival quite intriguing I don't understand it well yet so because we have um, a meta analysis of more than 10 trials showing that probably the important thing is to add the AEDT long term a bit independent of the dose but this trial now showed if you give three years of ADT and you give 80 instead of 70 gray um, that you had an overall survival benefit.
0: Silky, what did did the discussion think? Did the discussion say this is the new standard of care or did they say that actually the meta-analysis suggests this is a flash in the pan?
1: so she was very um, obviously very polite she wouldn't say anything like that yeah. so um, <laughs> i have to say unlike so, you tom yeah well yeah <laughs> I, I have i yeah i wouldn't have mentioned that but yes um so 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 i guess you know to be honest i, I guess most people um, at least in my center now are using a kind of moderate hypofractionation like 62 grays in 20 fractions um and that's obviously for the patients, much nicer than giving 80 grades in 40 fractions, right? This is double the time for the radiotherapy. So, you know, I think it was amazing that we saw the OS benefit, but I think we all um, are a bit, uh, you know, kind of wondering why would would such a clear OS benefit be shown. And also the curve separated after about one year. So, very early, right, in that, I mean, this localized setting. So, again, we have to to understand that. Next one is obviously the, the one that you have already discussed more than once. So, I'm not going to go too much into it. That's the contact two study, the phase three study in MCRPC after one RP uh, that randomized versus the second RP um, or carbosantinib artesolisomab. We, we talked about it also in the preview. Um, and again, you know, we had a lot of discussions. I think for, for most Europeans, this is not going to be a new standard. Um, there was some uh, PFS, ben- PFS benefit, um, but again, the, the standard arm was not equipoise. Um, yeah, I guess you have discussed all that. So do you, do you think it
2: was an a, yeah. a, issue with the control arm being hormone switch or lack of Cabo monotherapy or overall lack of overall survival. Is there one thing in your mind, Soki, that says, well, I'm not ready to adopt this?
1: I think that Kim Fee had did really a very good discussion about that, right? So first of all, I think it's really the the non equipoise standard of kind of not standard of care. on. So, so because this now, you know, if you compare it to PSMA 4, where we had the same discussion that maybe the alternate RP is not the best. But and also splash by by the way um, that has not been reported it was also interesting. But anyway, um, there they selected for patients that you would uh, think that an RP switch makes sense. So patients who have an indolent disease have mm-hmm. responded very well and very long to the first RP because we you know ends after AB has some effect in these patients. So you shouldn't be super strict and you never do it. What I did probably some. Time ago, but I think Kimchi said it well. So there are some patients who, you know, you can say, okay, this may be the 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 switch of the R P can be a way to go, but didn't seem this to be this study population in the contact to study. So, so I think that's one of the points. And um, yeah, yes. in your um, clinical practice
0: today, today are there yeah. any patients who develop CRP? And your intervention is an RP switch. Is it a standard uh, of care in any of your patients? You're using it as a control arm. Is it the standard care of any of your patients?
1: It's it's rare, to be honest. But but you know, it's kind of because we also have other drugs available. Um, in that sense, maybe we also in that luxury position. Um, and then we're not maybe I'm not so chemophobic for the patients who are fit for chemotherapy. But I can see the patients, you know, who had really a very good response um, to, to the first RP um, and then, you know, have wear, just a bit of PSA, progression, maybe one lesion that's a bit bigger. So, you know, Brian, we know these patients, right? So, and they're not fit for chemotherapy. So maybe you do an RP switch. Nowadays, probably I, after PSMA 4, you could discuss with the insurance to give them lutetium. So you would have another mechanism of action that works better. So I, so no, there are not a lot of these patients I in think my I'd practice. To, I, I don't disagree. There's not a lot in my practice. But but
2: sometimes it's a practical decision. Like before when lutetium was harder to get and it took longer. Mm-hmm, and a mm-hmm. patient where the holidays were coming up and he didn't you know, just the logistics of infusion weren't going to work for him. So we put him on ends and he's doing great. So I agree it's rare, but I don't think it's, mm-hmm. I don't think it's unheard of, or,
1: of course. or unethical
2: or anything, of course. I mean, if you can get mileage out of it, you're feeling pretty good about yourself.
1: But it, it's clearly not the majority of patients. Sure. Agreed. Agreed. And, and that's why when Tom is asking is the standard of care in your practice, I think we can say no. Um, but yeah there are some single patients and we all probably have seen patients who responded to the to the switch are
0: you taking part in prospective clinical trials with rp switch as the current standard of care or has that is that stopped that have those trials stopped
1: i haven't done that No. are you aware Personally. of other trials in that space yes there are other um trials in that space for example splash that's the uh, other lutetium mm-hmm. compound that um, had to be, was on the program, but then has been redrawn. Um, but again, at least I talked to Kim Chi and he said in that trial, again, they have selected for, like in PSL <laughs> for the patients where you could say it's ethical to do the the switch. So okay, let's move I, on. Let's move on. Let's move. Yeah, on. yeah, We've because you've discussed that, yeah. that
0: let's talk about the Olaparib, um Abbey study very very quickly. We did a beautiful podcast with Chim and he, Kim, and he described he felt there was a positive interaction between the two. You know, it was additive before Brian and I have been very skeptical and cynical (laughs) about this and you know astrazeneca came forward that group said and others have said you know there's something magic going on between these two we just thought it was PARP inhibition do you do you think that this combination you know it was a small randomized phase two study of patients with BRCA alterations 20 patients in each arm and the combination of ADD plus PARP appeared um, to to be much better than we would have expected is that fair
1: you know, I think the pity in that trial is really that, that it was so small, right? So, I mean, 20 patients, as you said, in each arm. And then, you know, the thing that would have really interested me would have been, because that would be the perfect trial. I mean, the trial design was really good. Like what, because they had crossover in both of the single um, therapy arms. Mm-hmm. Only <coughs> there was Only eight patients crossing over you know, from these 20 patients. So, so in that sense, you know, I don't show in the conclusions, it was said, oh, probably combination is better than sequential. I think that's far-fetched um, with so few patients. And I think far-fetched. that would have been... Those are strong words. That is, that. that's worse than a flash <laughs> in the pan. Yeah, Actually, that is worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I mean, I think it would have been so interesting to have, like, like, let's say... Two hundred patients in each arm, and then you would have known if really you know sequential. Given given the rarity,
2: given the rarity of the mutation, right? Because it was predominantly BRCA. I mean, it's hard to fault them for a small trial. I totally agree; larger is better. But, but do you think such a trial is possible with two hundred in each arm, of just BRCA, of just uh, BRCA, not not all HR?
1: But but it had Broca and ATM in. It had ATM, and yeah, that's right. It was and ATM, that's and that's, that's also one thing that I don't understand. Why are we grouping all always these Broca 1, Broca 2, and ATM together when we now, I think we have... Okay, but the child was planned before. But, you know, yeah. it's just kind of a historical thing because now, I guess, most of us don't think that ATM is the right. best it's because, target. It's because it's and, common.
0: It's because it's common. Well,
1: so if you but anyway, doesn't in, make it...
0: I know not okay. realise that, but I think you put ATM there. Suddenly, <laughs> you recruit much more quickly. You know, without ATM, it becomes really hard. I agree with everything. I always thought ATM was one of those things you got money out of from the wall until <laughs> I started doing prostate cancer. <laughs> <laughs> like
2: Jamie, <genuinely, laughs> <okay>, how about <laughs> one?
1: Let's. It for AN to be cancer, by the way.
2: <laughs> let's finish Sorry. prostate with one gem, one one you know non-oral data or something you thought was under under overlooked, undervalued.
1: I think what was very interesting was um, the abstract presented by Neil Shore, again about MBOK, sorry, uh, again, um, but it was quite interesting and it was a bit hidden in an educational. And he re- re- reported about the NSOMO norm and the alone norm, so not the combination norm, about the patient's who had the drug suspended because as you know that it was the idea that at week 37 all the patients who had a PSA lower than 0.2 the therapy was suspended. Mm
0: -hmm. Could you just for the listeners really quickly just describe mm -hmm. what Embark is?
1: Yes that it's a trial in patients with high-risk biochemical relapse no metastasis in conventional imaging who are treated either with ADT alone, what is the stand, was the standard, let's say that way, then ENSA, in the second arm ENSA alone, and in a third arm, the combination. And it has been shown that the combination is the best for uh, metastasis-free survival. But interestingly, the ENSA arm was better than the ADT alone arm. And so it was It was quite interesting because more patients on the ENSA arm had um, a suspension, so reached that point too. But then if you looked, all the patients who reached the suspension, so a really deep response to the therapy, the MFS was the same for ADT alone or ENSA yeah. alone. I think that was quite interesting, so I have to to think about that uh, a bit more. Um, in the no suspension group, of course, um, then the MFS was much better for the answer arm. Um, so so it's quite, it was quite interesting. I don't know what you thought. And, and then also... Is it possible,
0: also, Silky, that sorry. what it mm-hmm. represents is if you generate, irrespective of how you get there, if you generate deep responses, you do exceptionally well. Um, and it doesn't matter how you get there. But if you only generate modest responses, you need this slightly more active therapy.
1: Exactly. So this is this is what what it seems to be, and I, I think that that's quite interesting. That's new data. Um, and the other thing was kind of disappointing in a way for me. Um, like was that Brian's lot...
0: presentation? that
1: was... no. <laughs> no, 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 oh, no, no. Okay, no, no, sorry. Apologies. Sorry. No. I you <laughs> sorry. I you. no, listen to me. Um, what was <laughs> what was happening is, um, if you looked at the the patients who stopped. By the way, they could stop a medium of about twenty months. So that's quite long, you know for a treatment Mm -hmm. break. Um, And then the thing that was not so nice is that two years after the therapy suspension, less than 10% in both arms had undetectable PSA. So I would have expected a bit more you know, that patients who had nothing on the imaging um, had a really deep response um, would have been maybe really like undetectable with the PSA for longer. But anyway, so mm. interesting. And I hope we see the data also for the combination group sooner or later. Brian, renal right, cancer, far away, you go. Oh, i think the kidney cancer. <clears> yes, <throat> we are. Yes, sir.
2: <laughs> All right. Kidney cancer. I think big data would be adjuvant Pembro survival advantage. Mm -hmm. We had had a DFS advantage presented and published before. We now have an OS advantage, relatively unprecedented in this space, certainly in renal cancer. And I think it's pretty clean data. You know, it's a lot of patients got subsequent therapy. I think some of the questions after were interesting around of the patients Mm -hmm. who relapsed and died, how many got immune therapy? We know the numbers for the whole group, but not really broken down into, you know, who died and who didn't and, and what exactly they got. And so I think those are interesting questions, and I'd also like to see more about, there was no new long-term toxicity, but I think we're interested in persistent toxicity in this population. I'm not sure we got that data, but clearly a standard in the disease, you know, great data, nothing, no, you know, no, not many holes to poke at the data. Um, That was paired with Part B of (laughs) 914, Tom, I'm gonna buy you some cough syrup (laughs) soon. Uh, Part B of 914, which was Nevo monotherapy, or nivo or placebo 2 to 1 to 1. It was a complement to Part A, which had been reported for just ipinevo, which was negative. And this was similarly negative. Uh, I don't remember all the numbers, but basically overlapping curves, hazard ratio in the 0.9 range for DFS, and of course, no OS advantage. So, you know, the field still continues to scratch its head a bit about, you know, why do we have three negative adjuvant IO trials that are flatly negative and one wildly positive one? And we've talked before on this podcast and other forums about differences in mechanism and duration of therapy and patient population and all sorts of things. And I don't, I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's probably a collective of things, but you know, the the data is the data, but that was the, uh, uh, the pairing. Uh, We had some interesting data about, uh, quality of life with belzutifan. The presenter was awful. I don't remember who it was. But I, the... I, I heard it was very disorganized. <laughs> a very disorganized
0: presentation. I heard.
2: the. Uh, I think the data is interesting. I mean, Tom and I've we've talked a lot on this podcast about limitations of quality of life, but I think this is a setting where it's perhaps one of the cleanest, right? Because it's single drug versus single drug. We know belzutifan's well tolerated. I mean, that's the reputation well deserved, and it's nice to see. You know, quality of life data sort of mirror that uh, and match it. You know, and so we we need more data. We need better ways of measuring quality of life. But I think it adds to the the story of Zudafan in the refractory setting. And obviously, we'll see how that you know plays out in earlier settings, uh, which will will largely, if not exclusively, be in combination. Um, what Brian, else, Tom? What else was to highlight? OS for oh, yeah. Evo in the good the re- risk population. Hazard ratio is 0.82. There was up. There was an eight-year update of ipilimumab that Nazar presented, and the data continues to be, I would say, consistently impressive or impressively consistent. Right, the hazard ratio for survival was almost has been almost identical from the start. For PFS, the tail of the PFS curve, they presented both independent and investigator, and I won't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 23, 25% for independent review out at seven and a half years, and like 16% for investigator. So that that tail of the curve isn't perfectly flat, you know, it's not staying at that 30 plus percent we saw early on, but it's it's relatively flat. And and I think to me, I use these data in talking to patients, and they say, Hey, doc, what's gonna, you know, what's my long-term outcome? And these are at least data I can quote if I'm giving them this regimen to say, you know, the chance of being alive and progression-free is is X at this time point. We also saw data from um, Cabo Nivo. Uh, uh, an update that was, I think, four or five years median update. And again, pretty similar story to the other IOTKIs. We see the overall survival hazard ratio tick up. Tom, you alluded to the favorable risk subset where we see hazard ratios around one for the IOTKIs, initially above one for IPNEVO, now dipping below one. You see those curves cross. And it just, to me, it just speaks that there's clearly an immune responsive favorable subset, and classifying patients with just clinical characteristics really misses the biology a whole separate topic, but Brian, you know, we need to do better.
0: What was your take on the discussion around subsequent therapies after the adjuvant pembrolizumab control arm? There was a number of questions around that. What yeah, I thought it was a really
2: good discussion. You know, I thought uh, Chris Ryan asked a great question, Like, you know, which I alluded to, how many of the placebo patients who recurred and died got immune therapy? We don't know that number. Because if that number is super low, then you could say, well, wait a minute, maybe you know, maybe the survival advantage um, is dependent on not getting immune therapy, right? There's something like yeah. 30 more deaths in the placebo arm. Obviously, we don't know the exact timing, but there were quantitatively 30 some more deaths.
0: But just because you didn't get immune therapy as your first relapse treatment, that's not a disaster. It's about whether you get NEVO, nevo subsequently. and Well, because... it depends.
2: It could be a disaster <clears throat> if you die,
0: right? No, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. What I'm saying is the relapse population not all of them are going to get immediate immune therapy some are going to get radio frequency ablation some might even go yep. on observation some are going to get VEGF monotherapy you've just said the, the hazard ratios are one for VEGF IO so if you get axi as first treatment and good risk relapse or you get sunitinib that's not going to be detrimental to do you, survival. And do
2: you know the risk group of those who <clears throat> relapse? Um, right that wasn't presented so we don't know the risk group. So you want to we, see there's more? There's also a 20 some percent rate of both surgery and radiotherapy, I should say either. And then, I don't know, my practice, that's high. I wouldn't say that 20% of patients who relapse after adjuvant therapy are suitable for local therapy, certainly not the early relapsers, which would be the first, obviously five years. Yeah,
1: and Tom, I didn't, so at least I didn't understand the question from the people like, you know, as a first salvage therapy, but in the course of the disease before they die. I think that's what I understood that was the question, you know, and, and I think that will be easy to look at. Yeah, I hopefully. think it sounds
0: like that's important. And um, Brian, give me I mean, one of the, give me a hidden gem, Brian. I don't know, hidden gem. Do you want me to go um, on to cancer? I've got a hidden gem for you. What about No, Brian, can I ask something? Can I yes, ask something? Yes, Brian? Yeah, of course, of course, so of, course
1: I, of course. I thought super interesting was the sub Q administration because obviously that would be really fantastic if that would be working. But what the two of you thinking about that?
2: Yeah, so um, Sabi George from Roswell presented a sub-Q versus IV nevo in a refractory setting. I think it was just in a TKI refractory setting with, you know, comparable outcomes. It was a non-inferiority study and, and a, you know, similar PK parameter. So I think it's interesting from a, an access and patient convenience mm-hmm. standpoint. And so, you know, maybe not so much in our countries, but in certain parts of the world where this could have huge advantages, especially patients who live quite a ways from you know from a, a center from an infusion center right i think travel. the uk
1: would like it as well
2: tom um yeah i think
0: we would we've seen <laughs> a randomized phase of subcut atezo in lung cancer and we sh- we actually saw some relapse free survival and response data from that we saw a lot of pk data i think we would it would be nice to see efficacy beyond just pk um i think it's an exciting innovation and and i think it because as you the issue is of course, is, is around the pharmacy capacity, making the drug, the cost of the drug. And someone came to the microphone, and I can't remember who it was, and, and started talking about, you know, this may not actually be as cost effective as it sounds, because the dosing means you end up being, mm-hmm. I don't remember the detail of that question. But I think all of this needs to be put into the mix. But I think it is interesting. And, uh, and clearly, I thought he did a great job presenting it. It was difficult to present because it was lots of PK data.
2: All right, Tom Bladder, bring us home. Well, <laughs>
0: Brian didn't mention, of course, my, uh, my parallel between papillary renal cancer and the moons of Jupiter during his renal cancer highlights, which is <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> Um, someone came up to me afterwards, a friend of mine came up and said, so was Jupiter supposed to be sunitinib, which uh, was uh, not the right answer. So uh, uh, I didn't get that <laughs> really message well across. Really well presented. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, bladder cancer, really one outstanding piece of work. Um, the ambassador study investigate initiated, randomized phase three, high risk pembrolizumab versus observation, Andrea Apollo, couple of caveats, Um, quite a lot of patients withdrew, nivolumab became available during the conduct of the trial, may have complicated particularly the overall survival signal, Um, lots of censoring on that survival curve and I'm going to probably send out some some tweets around that. Actually there was lots of censoring on the atezolizumab curve which is also observation and I'm beginning to wonder whether or not we should not be doing observation adjuvant studies, I think that's an issue. Um, the um, because inevitably patients kind of make their mind up in an environment that's changing very quickly about mm-hmm. things that they want. Um, we there obviously observation trials are better for adjuvant patients. No adjuvant patient wants to have come in and have monthly infusions. That's but so it, it's a complicated discussion. And by the way, I was an advocate of observation. So it just shows how wrong one can be. The trial shows a DFS advantage, zero point um, six nine, OS zero point nine eight. Um, it throws the cat amongst the pigeons, and like I said that, and no one apparently understands what that means, um, but it, it basically is controversial because we haven't seen the oval survival from nivolumab, we did a whole podcast on that, <clears throat> and you're welcome to go back and have a listen to that. There was some other data presented also. There was updated EV Pembro data um, looking at subsets. Essentially, it's working across all subgroups. I don't think there was anything groundbreaking, although the data is groundbreaking. I think it it outperforms an upper tract disease and platinum eligible and PD-1 biomarker, which is great news. I think in terms of hidden gems and other bits and pieces that were presented, um, there was some quite nice. I mean, not I quite nice. There was actually a very nice um, rapid oral session. I actually thought the quality. A lot of it was investigate initiated work. There was some really nice work from Memorial on HER2 status and PDL1 expression, showing high PDL1. Sorry, high HER2 um, on IHC was had low PDL1. That might mean actually that monotherapy, HER3 ADCs in that group is better than combinations. Now, there are lots of caveats with PDL1 expression, we know that. But the bottom line is that's really important exploratory work because it helps us design trials for the future. There was some nice work from Matt Young um, who looked at the combination of ctDNA and um, uh, and RNA bio, tumor-based biomarkers and showed that if you focus on CTDNA-positive population, you may be able to enrich your biomarkers and make them slightly more accurate, which I thought was really neat, and I enjoyed that. Um, and and then I think um, the last bit, which which is maybe worth just mentioning very briefly, was there was some quite, I think, some quite nice data, EV plus erdifitinib, nine out of nine responders. Do I think that's the future? Not necessarily, but it's a second EV combination trial, which has shown activity. You'll remember EVSG showed response rates of 70%. We've got nine out of nine of EV plus ERDA. So we're in an environment where I think we're going to do more combinations. Uh, and that's how I'd like to summarize it.
1: Nice. So
0: which,
2: which disease had the best data? Prostate cancer.
1: Mm-hmm. No, kidney cancer for kidney Brian. Cancer.
0: <laughs> Actually, I think you're right. Look, I mean, the most groundbreaking data was that survival signal that have in the adjuvant setting. I think that's right. I thought the prostate session in term, and, and I think, but I think the prostate session. I don't know.
2: I always find the prostate session maybe prostate was most controversial. Yeah,
1: right?
0: yeah. with, yeah.
1: So, with the
2: breakaway.
0: I've not. I, yeah. I don't know prostate cancer as well, so I want to go on the meeting. I haven't seen it all, so it makes it a lot more interesting. Whereas. You know the other bits we sometimes because you're involved you know vaguely what's going on i love the prostate sessions but um so i thought it was fabulous i thought it was a good meeting i don't know if it needs to be in san francisco every year wouldn't it be nice if it was in i don't know boston one year
1: yeah Nashville, for instance london
0: i'm, I'm up for nashville let's do it Geneva. in london
1: uh, london would be cool <laughs> <would be> <laughs> everything that's not mine is nine hours <laughs> At least for me. Sorry.
2: Thanks. Okay. Thanks Soky, for joining. Fabulous. See Excellent summary. Cheers, then. bye, Thanks, <laughs> Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Ciao. ciao. <laughs>